So, welcome to the Casual Energy Podcast for April 2021. I'm Jason Gravel, and of course, our co-host Fred Fernandez, Fernandez is with us. And joining us today is soon-to-be Dr. Benjamin Ralston, uh, if you can say that, but who knows how long it actually takes to do a PhD. But uh, <laughs> So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and, and tell us a bit about what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Ben. I teach at the University of Saskatchewan College of Law, and I'm uh, doing a PhD here in law as well. Uh, so, among other things, I teach environmental law uh, here at the University of Saskatchewan, and I'm working on a PhD that has to do with environmental impact assessments. How's that? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so, the big thing that we want to talk about today is the recent Supreme Court of Canada decision that ruled that the the federal government's carbon pricing legislation is constitutional. And I mean, I, I guess this would be within your area of expertise, eh? Yeah, sure. I I wouldn't call myself an expert in carbon pricing from a policy perspective, uh, but it's a case about federalism. Uh, and I'm very familiar with how environmental law works uh, from a federalism uh, perspective in Canada. That sounds like a very lawyer, lawyerly response. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so this is a big deal. So I bet Jason Kennedy, Scott Moe, and Duck Ford are all hiding out in Alberta's war room right now, consoling each other. So, um, so I guess you know Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario were all part of you know all challenged the carbon tax. Was this a decision to all three challenges or are there still outstanding, uh, any challenges still to be tested? No, this resolves all three outstanding challenges. So there was one in Saskatchewan. Uh, we started this whole thing, I guess. Uh, and then after that, Ontario, finally, Alberta, all of those have been resolved now. Interesting. So do, what the, how does that work? Do they group them all together when they're coming up? Uh, because the challenges at a lower level happen separately, right? Yeah, so they, they don't necessarily have to do that, uh, but essentially what you can do is you can apply to have multiple cases heard at the same time at the Supreme Court of Canada, and this was a pretty obvious example of where that would make sense. Um, I guess in theory, they could have resolved the Saskatchewan challenge, and it would have then made the other two moot, uh, but they decided to just hear them all at the same time and resolve them in one fell swoop. And these were yeah. all, uh, they're, they're called reference cases where it's not a lot of factual evidence. It's, it's very abstract, very legal. And so, uh, you know, there's, it, there isn't a lot of difference between the various cases other than the preferences and views of the uh, courts of appeal in each province, I guess. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, so what were the central arguments then against uh, the, the carbon tax? And you're saying that there weren't a lot of differences between uh, kind of the three different challenges. Yeah, I, I guess it depends on the level of detail you want me to go into. But... <laughs> as detailed as you can. <laughs> uh, yeah, because it, it can get dry uh, if we start to dig down into it. But uh, I was trying to wrap my mind around how I could put this in layman's terms. Uh, yeah, the simplest way. Are I you can... saying we're laymen? <laughs> you, you guys, you're <laughs> yeah, all raised hand. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so I, I think lawyers were the only profession that defines every non-member of the profession as layperson. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like non-lawyers, you know, heathens. <laughs> anyway, so for the layman perspective, here's what I'd say is 
Canada is a federal country, right? Not all countries have these kind of issues. If we were in France or New Zealand with just a centralized national government, a challenge like this could have never occurred. It was all about the balance of powers between provincial governments and the federal government. And for us, that's set out in the 1867 version of our constitution. And so there's an original agreement, used to be called the British North America Act. Now we just call it the Constitution Act 1867. And it has two provisions in there that basically list, as at 1867, what our founding fathers felt should be provincial powers, as opposed to federal powers uh, for what would have then been the newly created federal government. And uh, lo and behold, in 1867, the environment wasn't really weighing on people's minds. And so we have an 1867 constitution that doesn't directly speak to environmental protection. And in part, that's because within at least uh, Western law, uh, we weren't really regulating to protect the environment yet. Uh, there were environmental protections in terms of property rights. Uh, there were a few examples, you know, protecting fisheries, but but more from the perspective that it was another form of property right. Uh, but we didn't have, you know, species at risk legislation or environmental assessments or anything like that uh, back in the 1800s. And so what we've seen is as our modern era of environmental law came about, uh, which started in about uh, either 1969 or 1970, depending on who you ask, uh, we've had this modern era of lawsuits in Canada challenging federal powers uh, to regulate the environment that come back to this point as to there not being a specific place in the original constitution where you can say which level of government has the power to regulate the environment. Uh, so there are some things that are fairly clear. Uh, you know, navigable waters are set out in the federal powers. So we've got Navigable Waters Protection Act. There's federal legislation for that. We've got fisheries uh, set out under federal powers. And so we've got a Fisheries Act, a very powerful piece of environmental law at a federal level. But for the most part, natural resource management is provincial in nature under our constitution. And so you find the majority of environmental laws are province specific, gets a little messier in the territories. And so in some senses, federal regulation and protection of the environment is the exception rather than the rule under our constitution. And yet for a variety of political and other reasons, we have our most powerful legislation for the protection of the environment at the federal level. And, you know, Taking a step back, the bigger picture is that the environment does not respect provincial, territorial, or even national boundaries. The, the nature of the environment is it's, it's about as broad in scope as uh, the globe. And so we've got all these artificial political and legal boundaries within which jurisdictions are exercised by these dueling governments uh, with their own political mandates and ideas. And so we have all these coordination problems, uh, whether it's for climate change, it could be marine pollution, it could be protected areas, uh, you know, protection of uh, fresh water, species at risk, etc. Right. And so ultimately, this case, uh, if you're to read it cover to cover, it's a long one. Uh, it's a very dry read and probably not something that's that interesting to non-lawyers. But for lawyers and law professors, it's a fascinating read uh, whether or not you're involved in environmental law, because you've got a case that is 
really revisiting some basic principles about how our country is structured legally uh, in terms of these dueling jurisdictions and uh, bringing it into a very modern lens uh, because I think if there's any kind of international and national crisis that we're tackling today, it would be climate change. How does that make sense? Uh, a decent background yeah, yeah. for you? Yeah, does that make sense? How do you feel about that, Fred? Oh, it sounds uh, informative, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, from, from the layman's perspective, I heard that the provincial government's arguments were had a little basis in law. I mean, is that true or um, is that kind of a stretch? Yeah, no, I, I'd say that's a stretch. Um, so from... From a legal perspective, the province has had valid arguments. Um, here's what I'd say is that a lot of times we see things happening at a federal or a provincial level, right? Laws are in place, things are going on, and no one's challenging the jurisdiction to do so, right? It's, it's when there's the political will to challenge the jurisdiction, could come from an individual, could come from a government, that these questions make their way before the courts. But for the most part, you know, legislation's in place. The rules of the game are set out by governments and, and we dance along as we have to, being the regulated individuals here. Uh, and it's up to these court cases to kind of push back and to clarify the nature of federal jurisdiction versus provincial jurisdiction, kind of a classic mm -hmm. constitutional fight. And so, you know, here's what I'd say is if... The provinces weren't opposed to what the federal government was doing. They didn't need to challenge this, right? So there, it, it could have been, everything could have been going ticky-boo with the federal legislation in place. It, it does give space for provinces and territories to put their own regimes in place as long as they meet national standards. Uh, and originally in uh, 2016, you had all the premiers and the prime minister uh, essentially agree that we needed a national um, framework for addressing climate change that would include carbon pricing. Uh, but then what we saw is politics changed at the provincial level in Alberta and Ontario. And then a few smaller provinces felt uh, maybe they had a bigger voice once there were more uh, conservative premiers in place. And so what started off as you know, maybe an uneasy consensus that there should be a national framework for carbon pricing starts to fall apart. And then these arguments make it to court. That's sort of something I wanted to ask too, uh, as the Trudeau government was, you know, um, planning this whole, this, this whole thing, did they not consult the, the provincial governments? But like you were saying that because of uh, uh, new governments in place voted in, that sort of changed the dynamic and relationship between the federal and the provincial governments. Yeah, exactly. I see, so I see. It, it did come down to politics. And so, you know, maybe to cut through the noise, because uh, some people, you've probably heard the media saying, you know, this was all bullshit and there was really no legitimate legal arguments being brought. Uh, right. I don't think you'll find any lawyers saying that per se. Uh, you know, many people speculated that if... If the federal government doesn't have the power to step in place and and make a national decision on something like climate change, what good is having the country? Right at that point, we're just a, a couple, you know, sovereign provinces that happen to be contiguous with one another, right next door to each other. Uh, but you know, the, putting the legal piece aside, if it weren't for 
this particular framework. So if they hadn't created the backstop that allowed for provinces and territories to design their own carbon pricing regime, there were other ways in which the federal government could have regulated greenhouse gas emissions anyways. Right? So ironically, the opponents are calling it a carbon tax, and it's it's not really a tax from a yeah, legal it's perspective. Yeah, carbon pricing, I guess. It, is... Exactly. Yeah, it's carbon yeah. pricing, right? It's revenue neutral. A tax mm -hmm. is by definition a way of generating revenue. Uh, so it's not really a carbon tax. But what we do know is that the federal government does have a taxation power, right? And so ironically, right, you'll hear this a lot. Oh, it's a cash grab. I mean, it's the exact opposite of a cash grab. It's it's just like BC's carbon tax, uh, where it's meant to be revenue neutral, uh, not necessarily a, as part of the policy design, or, or I guess as part of the policy design to make it politically um, more uh, acceptable. I don't know how else to describe that, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately, if you're in Alberta or here in Saskatchewan and, and you're one of the jurisdictions with a government that's flipped the bird to the federal government on this, uh, we should get roughly what we've put into through this carbon tax back after tax time. Uh, so it, it's not meant to generate income for the federal government. But if they wanted to, they could have done that. Right? They could have done an actual cash grab. They do have a constitutional power to impose taxation at a federal level, like the GST, for instance. Uh, and, you know, how so else even, could you fund a federal government, right? <laughs> yeah, even in areas, though, that would be traditionally the, the purview of the, the provinces. So, I mean, like, I guess the reason why I, I asked that is because, like, to some extent, to, to some extent, does this kind of res resemble kind of the crisis they had with Trudeau Sr.'s national energy policy? I mean, I don't know enough about that to say, but uh, I, I guess, you know, on a, an intuitive level, it does feel very similar, yet um, maybe you can explain that a little bit. Yeah, I'll tease those apart. So, yeah, you know, being a, a former Albert myself, <laughs> I, I, I know at least that sort of intuitive uh, version of the National Energy Plan. Yeah. What, what we're talking about in the National Energy Plan, or at least the way it's framed, is, uh, you know, nationalization of a resource primarily located in Alberta or located in Alberta in the greatest abundance. Uh, and you've got a situation where the provinces own the natural resources within their boundaries. Okay, so let's put that aside, right? That's about who gets the revenue from resource development in each province, right? Here, if this were designed as a true form of taxation, we'd be talking about GST and PST, right? Are we going to harmonize them or will they overlap? But you've got two levels of government. They're both allowed to tax in order to generate revenue. Uh, so there is a taxation power, right? So I don't want to get too into the details as to what that might look like, because that's, yeah. that's basically an alternative reality at this point. But it's one of the ways in which the federal government could have imposed a true carbon tax had they wished to do so. The problem is, though, if they had done that, then they wouldn't be allowing provinces like Quebec to do you know, cap and trade and DC to keep going with their carbon tax. They wouldn't be allowing for this diversity of different approaches because you did have some provinces that were leading the way. And I hate to BC, say it, but yeah. yeah, BC, Ontario as well. 
Quebec as well, and even Alberta. Alberta has uh, for a long time had carbon pricing specific to large industrial emitters. Right? Really? We, we invent this stuff like this is, you know, oh, carbon taxes. It's this big, scary monster that's creeping across the sky right now. But we've had ways of dealing with carbon pricing for quite a while now. It's just, it's become hyper-politicized. And this is just one more way of further politicizing it. And it's one of the reasons why people are saying, you know, some people say, oh, this will be, uh, you'll have Jason Kenney licking his wounds or, you know, Scott Moe here in Saskatchewan licking their wounds. But but it could be they're just going to bang on the pinata that much longer, right? And that the next federal election, it'll be, you know, let's go on more and more about the evil carbon tax that Trudeau imposed, right? So politics work mm. very much independent from the legal system. And it's the lawyer's job to come up with a credible argument to, to kind of keep that ball in the air and bring it up to the Supreme Court of Canada, make the headlines. But there is a political piece happening yeah. at the same time that, that is somewhat disconnected from right. the outcomes of these cases. Would you say, um, is there any benefit to educating the population regarding this? Does that change anything? Does that politicize it even more? Uh, I, you know what? I, I think it it's helpful in the sense that at least what we do have is a, a moment of education around, uh, you know, anthropogenic climate change. So human induced climate change. That was something that the Supreme Court of Canada took judicial notice of, meaning that they didn't need to see evidence at this point that humans are changing the world's climate. Right. It's it is such an established fact that it's it's like it's like judges taking notice of the fact that the sky is blue, right? They don't need people sure. bringing evidence into court to reprove yeah. that again and again. Right. And so, what you do have is now a number of court cases as a result of this very expensive litigation, where courts have said, you know, it's it's the crisis of our time. Uh, greenhouse gas emissions yeah. are are this real live thing that we need to deal with. It's a small win, but it's a win. Right. Uh, but, you know, it starts to have this educational function, right, where people are learning more about uh, exactly what this regime is and what it's not, hopefully. Uh, but it all depends on the way in which media digests it and then portrays it to people. I guess it's almost unavoidable uh, for it to be a politicized, unpoliticized. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, think, I think it's another thing where... It's it's avoidable. <laughs> I mean, avoidable, it's, sure. Yeah, it's it's harder because there will be. I mean, the whole point of carbon pricing is to change the behavior of industrial emitters, but also individuals, right? Because it's not just industry that is, uh, you know, producing large amounts of greenhouse gases that are changing right. our climate. It's also individuals, and so. From a policy perspective, you know, ideally, we're changing all behaviors across the board, and we're not just targeting industry, right? It's it's actually a, an inherently conservative approach, right? It's mm -hmm. it's usually the conservative economists who propose something like a carbon tax that is neutral across the economy because it's not favoring one industry against another. Right. So usually, when we see it designed, it it, it does uh, exempt a few politically, yeah, uh, you know, protected industries like agriculture. Uh, but ultimately, when you're trying to change people's behavior, 
people aren't going to like that, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so that's I'll like for my cheese. <laughs> <laughs> that's like BC's model, right? Because then it was kind of hailed, you know, back in 2008 when it was introduced as kind of a global model because it was evenly distributed across consumers and businesses as well. Uh, and then it was kind of uh, structured in such a way that it was completely revenue neutral and it returns. And as you say, touching on it, while I know it was the BC Liberals under the liberal banner that introduced it, but really they're more libertarian than liberal and more on that conservative end, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting how it's kind of positioned as this thing from the left, the scary monster from the left, but it really, really isn't originally. <laughs> no, not at <laughs> you know? all. And, and I, I love the BC example because it, it, it gives you an alternative universe where, you know, someone's just on the other side of the aisle and yeah. they're benefiting from making a crisis out of it because it's going to cost people more money or it's going to cost them more money if they don't change their behavior. And yeah. so if you remember Gordon Campbell, uh, who had been the premier of, uh, the, of BC under the BC Liberals, which are essentially the Socreds, uh, they're like the equivalent of a progressive conservative party. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it was a right-leaning government that imposed a carbon tax in bc and the ndp at the time were like well this is going to hurt families this no exactly this, yeah that. and oh, interesting. screaming bloody murder and even david suzuki was just like what are you saying <laughs> like, wow. it was, wasn't a great look for the ndp at the time right I yeah. Mean, yeah anyway so it, it it's really and we see the same bizarre thing happening where we've heard federal conservatives suggest that rather than a carbon tax, and I'm putting that in air quotes so you can't see me because uh, it's not truly a tax, but rather than this price on carbon applying across the board, it sounds like the federal conservatives have been suggesting it would be better to just target the heavy industrial emitters, which is not exclusively Alberta, but it's you know, predominantly, it's going to hit hard in Alberta, right? Yeah. It's going to hit the oil and gas industry. And so there's there's not a coherent conservative position against this, right? A conservative free market e economist driven model would be this kind of carbon pricing model. And so it's, it's kind of ironic, almost hilarious, right? Because you've got some progressive people who are rallying behind what's a free market model. And then you've got some purportedly free market driven individuals politically, you know, yeah, screaming off the roofs of the, or rooftops, how terrible this is. It, you know, the, the actual politics of it don't line up in a, a principled way, but it is what it is. Life in the yeah. 21st century. No, totally. Uh, so, I guess, I mean, does this close the carbon tax debate for good, at least short of a future government repealing it, uh, at least from like a constitutional perspective? Yeah. So here's what I'd say. Uh, there is no doubt that provincial governments like BC has done can impose a carbon tax or like Quebec has done, can impose a cap and trade system. Right? They have most of the constitutional clout to regulate the environment. What the Supreme Court of Canada has said, however, is that there's also room for a federal role, specifically setting a minimum national standard. Okay, and so that's essentially, it's as narrow as that, right? This yeah. case has said that it is constitutional, though you won't find it in the written text of the constitution, 
It's a, a constitutional exercise of the federal power over peace, order, and good government uh, for them to impose a national standard to avoid free riders, right? And, and that's essentially what it comes down to is that uh, no one province can force other provinces to behave, uh, you know, in a, an appropriate way and to hold them to, you know, this idea that there should be a framework for addressing climate change across the country. Um, it's only the federal government that has that power to be the arbiter here and to say, okay, here's the standard we all have to meet if we're going to meet our international obligations. And that's essentially what the Supreme Court of Canada said is that, okay, that is justifiable, that is constitutional. And so that debate has been resolved now into the future. Short of the Supreme Court of Canada in, I don't know, the year 2035 revisiting this and saying, whoa, that was actually a bad idea in hindsight. Uh, yeah. This this is the nature of the law now. So it is a, a permanent uh, well, precedent to be followed. Cool. So I guess I don't know much about, uh, you know, the maritime provinces, uh, Manitoba, you know, obviously we know BC's had their own carbon pricing system and you talked about Quebec that actually I didn't, I didn't know too much about. Uh, but, you know, were those provinces that were silent? I mean, have they had their own kind of system or were they just kind of neutral on the whole thing? You know, I'm going to plead a bit of ignorance too. I, I don't yeah. know that much about the Atlantic situation. Yeah. Uh, what I do know is that New Brunswick changed governments as well. And so yeah. while they didn't have time to do their own judicial reference and waste a bunch of taxpayer money on it, uh, they had eventually, I think, intervened in favor of the challenges to the federal act. Oh, okay. uh, but here's what I'd say at a level of generality. It's that, you know, this is ultimately federal legislation that puts a backstop in for the naughty provinces who refuse to put into place their own particular regime. But it's also an opt-in option for territories and provinces that might just be of the view that, you know, they're too small and it would be too expensive to manage yeah. their own comparative regime. And so I know, I think Nunavut and the Yukon and PEI have opted into at least parts of the federal legislation. I think for Yukon and Nunavut, they opted into both aspects because they're they're just small or territories, yeah. small populations. Well. And then I think PEI opted into the industrial part because, you know, they, they don't have a booming oil and gas industry or anything to worry about. Um, and it's, it's a little easier for them to have a fuel tax or a fuel charge, something to that effect. Um, and so, you know, there, there is that aspect where, you know, for if you're Alberta or you're BC or you're Quebec, uh, there might be all sorts of reasons to create your own regime and to manage your own regime. But it becomes a little bit like the PST, HST, GST debate, right, where you got to strike a balance between efficiency and just harmonizing with the federal system and basically making the, the federal arm of government deal with it on your behalf versus reduplicating all that bureaucracy, you know, the costs have to outweigh the benefits, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned the territories because that was actually going to be my next question and how it impacted them, especially with like Nunavut when they have so much diesel, diesel power generation and they don't really have any alternative options for power production. I mean, how, mm -hmm. how does that work for them? Yeah. So, um, 
here's what I can say is that they are under just the, the general federal regime. And so that's one aspect is the fuel charge. Uh, and then the other aspect is the large industrial emitters. Uh, what is it? Large industrial output based pricing system, I think is the correct terminology, if that helps. Um, I mean, they don't yet have an oil and gas industry in Nunavut that I'm aware of, although there are offshore oil and gas reserves that uh, the government in Nunavut is at least open to exploring. Um, so they're not quite dealing with the same level of, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's complicated too. <laughs> I, I don't know how complicated do you want me to get this? Uh. There's also something called devolution where, where, Yukon and Northwest Territories have taken on province-like powers over natural resources. Nunavut is not yet there, but they will soon be at that level where they have uh, most of the jurisdiction over natural resources. Right now, they're primarily regulated by the federal government anyways. How Um, do uh, territories and provincial jurisdictions work, the differences? So provincial jurisdictions are... They're set out in that 1867 constitution. And so right. uh, it's it's a constitutional division of powers. And, and if something falls clearly under provincial constitutional authority, then the feds have to butt out and vice versa. Right. right? Okay. Um, and so there's some overlapping and there's blurring of lines. You know, society is more complex today than it was in 1867. Uh, but they have this very powerful constitutional authority that they can you know, informs their negotiating position for right. federal regimes like this. Uh, when it comes to the territories, the default is that they're essentially like municipal governments. They, there's a federal legislation. There's something called the Nunavut Act, for example, that creates the Nunavut territorial government. And that gives it a bunch of powers that, by coincidence, look a lot like the powers that the provincial governments have under the Constitution. Uh but the federal government could claw those back. Uh, so they don't have constitutional protection for it. And devolution is, it's kind of the next stage between a territory and a full province. And so it will mean full control over natural resources within the territories, short of having a constitutional backing for it. And, and that would require a constitutional amendment. And no one's really wanted to you know, swat at that uh, hornet's nest uh, for at least my lifetime. (laughs) Thanks for the clarification. No worries. I'm definitely in favor of Turks and Klikos joining Canada. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, (laughs) Once they're ready, then maybe we can reopen constitutional talks. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I guess aside from how it impacts the fight against climate change, I mean, do you think this decision will have broader impact on you know, federal and provincial relations, especially as we go forward and have to address more global issues? Uh, Not necessarily. I mean, yeah, it's it's a hard call. Here's what I'd say is that had it gone the other way, then definitely, right? Had had Mm -hmm. it gone the other direction and the Supreme Court of Canada, a majority had said, no, this is actually something that the federal government can't do. That could have allowed for some unraveling of the case law that's in place. Uh, But as it stands right now, generally speaking, even though there's no federal power over the environment, uh, what we do know is that federal statutes like the Species at Risk Act, it's backed by the federal government's power over the criminal law. 
And so they have an environmental law power to basically create environmental regulatory offenses. And there are a number of statutes that do that. And they also have, uh, you know, this power over at least minimum standards for um, carbon taxation. And they also have a power over marine pollution. That was based on the last big uh, peace order and good governance environmental law dispute to make it up to the Supreme Court of Canada in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So... There's a fairly robust amount of cases now suggesting that the federal government has a big role to play in environmental uh, regulation. So one thing that's happening right now in Alberta is that the Alberta government has also been challenging federal environmental assessment legislation, and they're hoping for the Alberta Court of Appeal to say that that is constitutionally overreaching by the federal government as well. Mm -hmm. There's a chance that the Alberta Court of Appeal may indeed come to that conclusion, but there is also this possibility for the federal government to take it up to the Supreme Court of Canada if that is the outcome. And this case could strengthen some of this kind of national power doctrine uh, in favor of that challenge. It's it's a very different piece of legislation. It, it, it doesn't it's not a crystal ball to tell us exactly how that would play out if the case does go to the Supreme Court of Canada, but but it is one more kind of, uh, I guess, <laughs> one more case that's gone the federal government's way, uh, yeah. building up the authority that they have over environmental protection, if that makes sense. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really fascinating. Anything you want to kind of uh, add to or ask or anything like that, Fred? Uh, I mean, not at the moment. This has a, been a very educational moment, uh, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So if you talk about your expertise, you know, you're, you're saying that like you're an expert in, in federalism. I guess I'm curious about that topic, right? Because it's like, as you say, you know, back in 1867, they weren't so much thinking about, you know, um, in, in protections for the environment right and mm -hmm. obviously uh that could they couldn't have anticipated even at you know a, a very globalized world as we're we're kind of you know moving towards and if you think of like i saw something i'm not sure if i read it or saw it somewhere not too long ago but how um you know what we see uh in the european union now where you have this group of countries that kind of have this loose association really was the united states like 200 years ago um, it's just that there was no allow there was no allowance in their constitution to kind of backpedal. And so um, they're kind of just stuck with what they got. So I mean, you know, when you when there's kind of a very a rigid structure, or a rigid kind of differentiation between powers between the provinces and the government, I mean, how is that or in the federal government? How is that going to impact us as we're dealing with, you know, globalized issues going forward? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's a tense situation. So at the same time that this uh, climate change challenge was going through the courts, there was also a challenge in Quebec uh, to the Federal Species at Risk Act. And the concern there was you have another federal statute that was applying to protect uh, the Western chorus frog. So a species at risk that's federally listed that happened to be in a part of uh, metropolitan Montreal that was stopping a some kind of uh, real estate development from going ahead. And the developer had enough financial clout to try and take this through the courts and challenge it. And so 
we do have this this constant possibility or, or, or vulnerability to these federalism challenges when the federal government is taking these kinds of actions. But on the flip side, right, this is policy neutral in a sense. And so there are also cases where we've had federal or provincial governments that may not be doing right by the environment. And this federalism has been, uh, you know, to give it a bit of a, a warfare kind of <laughs> uh, metaphor here, but it, it gives ammunition to environmentalists who might want to challenge what the government is doing. So a right. famous example in BC, uh, you had a bunch of um, basically advocates against um open net pen salmon farming. And what they did is they successfully challenged uh, the provincial jurisdiction over salmon farming. And they said, hey, you know what? Actually, fisheries are in the constitution of federal power. Why is BC the one that's in charge of and making all this money off of uh, net pen salmon farming? And they won in the court. Um, now, the, the federal government just basically delegated its authority back to BC and, you know, they kind of figured it out in a way that had minimum political consequences because both the federal government and the provincial government were pro-salmon farming at the time. Uh, but you do have these vulnerabilities that can go in both directions. And so this is why from the lawyer's perspective, you know, everyone's excited and, and you'll find very few lawyers and law profs who say that this was a waste of time uh, because, you know, we're all really fascinated by these constitutional issues, but they're politically neutral constitutional issues. Uh, it's, it's frustrating when you have a federal government that wants to take meaningful action on environmental protection, right? Because then you've got the possibility of these challenges that might fetter it, but the roles could be reversed. And it could be the situation where you've got a federal government that's doing the opposite, and perhaps using federalism for leverage is a way to push back against that uh, federal overreach that might be contrary to the goal of uh, dealing with greenhouse gases, for instance. So yeah. I don't know if that's helpful or not. It's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is uh, really helpful. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and, and chatting with this, uh, chatting with us about this. I mean, it, it's such an important issue. And I feel like to doing what we do, you know, with uh, regarding energy efficiency and climate, uh, and low, you know, lowering GHG emissions and everything like that, it's, it, we're kind of at the epicenter here in Alberta of that kind Alberta, of that yeah. fight, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, no, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us about this. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Ben. Cool. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. Take care. Yeah, you too. To learn more about how you can save money and lower your environmental footprint, visit originenergy.ca. Remember, you can always leave us an audio message by visiting Anchor fm slash origin poc will definitely include interesting messages and in future episodes thanks for joining us and thanks for helping us power brighter communities